break podcast uh, i'm your host dominic o'sullivan and as always we look at all the issues related to the transition from the military uh, and people going on to a successful second career uh, now those conversations have taken us in lots of different directions we've spoken to people about their own lived experience we've talked to organizations connected to veterans and supporting veterans um, and today i'm delighted to be joined by gina atkinson who's former royal signals um, but importantly, and if you check her out on LinkedIn or on her bio, Inspiration of the Year 2022, Soldiering on Awards, Volunteer of the Year 2023. Uh, she's had a uh, post-military career in private security, uh, and she's very much one of those people with a, with a new purpose and a new drive. So uh, delighted to welcome onto the podcast, Gina. Hello. Hi. Hi, Dom. Yeah, thanks um, for having me on on board. Um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Well, uh, Gina, listen, I, I could look at your bio and and the things that stand out from that and obviously, you know, achievements in the, in the military. But then, I, you know, I would kind of go on to say high achievement post-military as well. But I'm, I'm just going to rewind this, I suppose, a, a little bit. Um, what's the what's the background before the military? You know, was there was there military connections in the family? What what drew you towards the army in the first place? Yeah, so um, I well, my my brother was Royal Navy Reserves. My dad was Merchant Navy. Um, they'd always been involved in the British Legion, so uh, I'd always been around, you know, selling poppies and all that type of thing. Um, and I was living round the corner from Chetwind Army Barracks and I used to see little soldiers going in to the barracks every now and again and found out about the cadets. Um, so joined the Army Cadets at like the age of um, probably 13, 14. And, and that's where, if you like, I, I realised that I was actually, you know, I enjoyed doing the green stuff, you know, getting getting. Um, running around with a gun, pretending that I was I was a soldier, um, shooting, all, all that type of you know stuff, which which is our bread and butter within the military. I just loved it, um, and I think that's where my passion sort of came from. That I wanted to, to join up originally. I wanted to join up in the army legal corps because I wanted to become a, a, a barrister or a solicitor, um, but my A levels didn't quite make the grade of in those days I think it was two A's and a B so impatiently I wanted I just went off to join the army basically <laughs> I could just see I could just see brother and dad's face now when you said army rather than navy because I could yeah. imagine there was a there was a kind of uh, what do you mean you don't want to join the navy but you know interesting then when you when you go in I mean what year did you what year did you join uh 96 now, obviously, the army then, 96, probably a different army than it is now. If I go back to my time in the Air Force 85, you know, the generational change and 
and you know rules and different things change over over the years what's the biggest shock to the system to you when you when you first went in and obviously coming from a cadet background I'd imagine a lot of it was kind of in your stride you knew what to expect but was there any big shocks when you went in um do you, do you know what when when I went in it was just a continuation of the cadets because I, I just loved it um yeah there was there was a bit more you know shouting and screaming and there was a bit more it was a lot more it was a lot more physical i, I think these you days know. you call that encouragement it wasn't shouting and screaming really yeah, sorry, it was just yeah, encouragement yeah. A, lot of, <laughs> a lot of active encouragement <laughs> perfect um well yeah I, I i just i just loved it basic training um i wouldn't say i found it easy but you know i i, I knew how to march i knew i knew how to do basic field craft uh you know i knew how to strip a weapon i knew how to shoot so it it was it was a lot more comfortable for me than the girls or and lads that joined up from no sort of background at all. Yeah, I can imagine. And I'd, I'd imagine you were the popular kid, right? Because you would have known how to pull shoes as well, right? And if there's <laughs> one thing I struggled to get my head around when we joined, I had the wrong kind of spit, apparently, my yeah, general instructor told me. But, you know, you talk about taking things in your stride then. If you look back, in, and obviously, you know, career in in the army, if you look back on it, what are the most significant, I'm going to say, legacies or things that really in, you, you would say were a massive influence on you that have stayed with you till till you left? Um, as in experiences during, during my service? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think the biggest thing is, you know, you, you, you join, don't you, to see the world? Well, that's certainly what I did. And, and, I, and I was very fortunate. I say lucky because we, that's what we all want to do at the age of, you know, 18, 19, is, is go and see the world. And and I joined 30 Signal Regiment, which was the Globetrotters of the signals at the time. You know, state-of-the-art, satellite communication, things that you only saw on Star Trek was what we were kind of doing, you know, video television conferencing in 98, 99, which now is normal, but <laughs> then it wasn't heard of. <laughs> So, I, I, can, um, I, I remember actually the first time someone mentioned video conferencing. I was still in a machine, we were probably about 98, 99. And everyone's just rolling their eyes, going, ah, I'll never catch on. But <laughs> and look where we are now, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and it, was, it, it was just sort of, you know, a, it was a, a, a really good era, if you like, because we were really advancing in technology, which is now what, what we've got today in everyday life. And it was it was going on these operations which at the time were all kind of peacekeeping and it and it was you know with signals aren't we so you don't think you can't sometimes can't tangibly see the difference you're making we, we were a lot of the time we were we were the first to sort of go into a situation and and in in the signals you you expect not to be engaged that much with the the community and not see tangibly what you were doing for that community but because we were in such a unique unit, we, we we were just seeing the help we were giving to the community, and that that really, you know, the heart and mind type thing. And you were you you were in the military, and you were making a difference to that society, and and to to you know the environments around you. And I think that's the biggest thing when I when I talk about my services. You know, helping that child, um, you know, giving him a Twix bar or in East Timor, giving them water because 
because the water had all been cut off and the electricity had been cut off or just giving them a pencil or a piece of paper to, to draw a picture, you know, the things which in this country we take so much for granted and we're very, very lucky in this country. Um, and I, I think they're the biggest things, they're the biggest moments when you see the connection to real life as opposed to in sterile in the barracks, just doing your job. Uh, now, the common misconception, I suppose, from people outside the military is that uh, when you say army, and I went to, you know, operational tours, they're probably automatically going to think, you know, fighting, combat, you know, uh, difficult, you know, difficult scenarios like that. But actually what you're intimating there is actually it's the human connection and actually, you know, helping the community and helping the people there is a big part of the role. And the thing that's made the biggest impression on you, have you have you struggled when you talk and you try and explain about your military service to you know employers or to to people who you know civvies i suppose in interviews to explain that it isn't just about fighting and actually that kind that side of the role and how impactful that is yeah definitely you know i i i'm a vegan now okay so i'm a- I'm <laughs> two two B words of the the, the vegan there's, now. A, there's a joke so, in there, Gina. Normally, yeah, someone will say, "How do you know you're talking to a vegan?" Well, they'll tell they'll you. Tell right? you. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't normally mention it, but but because of this question, it's kind of brought it up. So I've had people outrightly sort of because they go, "You're a vegan, so you don't, you know, agree with killing animals and all that sort of stuff." When you go out rescuing animals, how could you have gone to war? And and being in that environment, obviously I was younger, so you you know you experiences and stuff change you and what you want to do, but also it was I then throw it back at them, <laughs> and and say well and this was from another um, vegan if you like that um, I was on peacekeeping roles and I made a difference and the army makes a difference even in you know recent more recent wars like Afghanistan and stuff like that. We're still out there helping the community, albeit that the it doesn't get expressed on the news. You know, you don't see those small acts of kindness which make a difference to people's lives. You know, when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan, we've we've shaped people's lives for the better because we've we've given them freedom or showed them that freedom and potentially let them have a way out by females you know being educated and that type of thing so it it it, it put put him back in his box for sure <laughs> um and i think i think that's that's definitely something which doesn't get portrayed that much by by the news really and i think listening to you talk about that it's quite apparent that those experiences have shaped and changed your attitude to certain things now as you say as you get older you know we we kind of look back on things and go you know those things that had the impact we probably view them through a slightly different lens when we're veterans compared to when we were we were in green but if you kind of you know you're a veteran now you see you know you look back at your army days how does how does it feel to be a veteran now for you in 2023 um yeah so when i I first got out. It wasn't a word I sort of connected with. It was being a veteran, you know. I was, I was, I was only just sort of thirty. Uh, I had the whole of a career ahead of me, and and you, you view a veteran as you know those 
amazing Second World and First World War veterans by the Sanitaf with all their medals full of, you know, chests full of medals and their berries on. Um, and, and I didn't connect with it. However, now I, I'm I'm quite proud to say that I'm a veteran because because you know veterans can be they can be a 20 year old that's that's had an unfortunate you know operation and and been been disabled so it can be all of us and I think the big thing is about shaping the change of how the public perceives us as veterans and the fact that women are there and they do serve and they've served for hundreds of years and you know we I, I still get the odd the odd guy tap me on the shoulder and tell me my medals are on the wrong side or you know that that type of thing or you know you're too young to be a veteran but but certainly attitudes are changing and I think from charities like Health for Heroes you know Combat Stress Walking for Wounded they're, they're helping change the the vision of what a veteran is in today's society which is really yeah, good. It- it's almost like you know, when you said there, you know, it didn't identify with the word veteran. It's almost like there's a veteran hierarchy, like, you know, World War II veterans. Were, uh, that's the pinnacle of it. Anyone that's done combat, yeah. isn't it? And right down to the point of someone, well, I just folded some blankets in stores, so I don't I don't see myself like them, but I am still a veteran. It's a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of a challenge for us, I think, I think when we leave. Listen, there is that point where during service and, and through all the positive experiences, you know, positive and negative, that you think, you know, what's outside? You know, how did how did the decision to leave come about? Was it one that you you thought might I've done my time now's the time, or was it forced upon you? What, what was the what was the decision around leaving like? Yeah, I, I kind of I think I made the jump because I, I I got to sort of the pinnacle of my career doing some really, really, really good stuff. And I knew if I kind of didn't leave while I while I was at that that point, I would I would have to generally stay in for the rest of you know you've 22 years, and I wanted to leave while I was sort of young enough to make a new career and and use my experience to my advantage to you know get out. I ended up living in America and 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 doing some really good stuff with different armies and and doing high level security. So I think I left at the the right time, and I, my body was pretty broken as well, if I'm honest. So I thought if it stay any longer, I'd be I'd be broken. It's like it's like dog years, isn't it? Like one year in the army is like four normal years. So by the time you've done a few, your body's yeah, taking a, taking a bit of battering and done some mileage. But you know that that decision to leave is yours. You kind of go right. I know I've got a second career and still having the energy and the the years to be able to to build up a decent second career but but in your mind did you know what that career was going to look like or what it was going to be were you pretty settled at that point on right that's a that's a very definite pathway or were you kind of searching for something not 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 really I didn't really know what I was what what was out there if you like I, I did naively think that I would get out and because I was, you know, a, a sergeant acting staffy that everybody would know what that was and I'd go into higher ma- management and get an amazing job. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Well, it wasn't then, maybe a bit more so now because they give you more advice on CVs and that type of thing. But definitely, um, I, I, I didn't really know. I thought secure, it was either going to be security or <laughs> putting up TV aerials which are totally 
and, and I suppose that's the that's the staying in lane, isn't it? Because like you've yeah. got a trade, you kind of follow that trade outside, you know, without the uniform, but it's the same trade. At what point did you kind of realise that actually the job outside isn't quite what it was inside, or it's not what I thought it was going to be, and I need to maybe kind of change my thoughts? Did when did you get to that point? Pretty pretty much instantly when I got out. I um I I, I got out. I went went um backpacking in Australia for a month on my own you know um having a a, a great time you know free, real freedom uh, it felt like real freedom because I had, had nobody to tell me what to do nobody to consider and just did my own thing so and I no came compo back. <laughs> and, and you're out on exercise without compo and no rules what could be yeah, better no, than that no right? compo, just loads of beer and and <laughs> crazy fruits and a few Australians um <laughs> so I, I I came back and thought yeah I'll just get a job and and I it didn't happen I I ended up signing up to the Signals TA um, reservists and and getting on there and worked as um one of the PSIs because it was a spare role and they were they were really good I did three days a week with them um albeit I was I was TA but they gave me a permanent staff role and and then I ended up nearly working on which was going to be soul destroying a car park on £3.50 an hour collecting car park tickets. Um, and I, I was like, oh, my God, what the hell have I done type moment. But I wasn't going back because they said they'd see me back in six months and that wasn't going to happen. Whatever <laughs> that now, was thick-headed. You know, <laughs> you, well, when you're in uniform, right, really clear, you've got, you know what your job is, you've got a purpose, you're kind of aligned to that, you know, you can... I suppose follow the dots and you know what you're doing then all of a sudden those rules aren't there that structure's not there the expectations of finding the kind of role that you really want to do have kind of gone sideways and now you're faced with okay it's a car park it's three pound fifty an hour you know how where where do you go from there to kind of go right do you, do you give yourself a kick at the backside? Was it luck that opened the door? I mean, how do you how do you kind of make that move? Because some people get to that point and they'll end up just taking whatever job they can and and almost lowering their expectations. But how how did you face that? I I, I was pretty luck. I think it was luck to be honest. I'd done my CP license, which had just come in literally like a year or so before, um, and I got a job down in London looking after a really. Um, Really, really rich, really, really rich family. Um, and basically they'd been held up at knife point um, in in their own house. So we were down there sort of doing um, days and nights, mainly looking after the children because that's all they were concerned with. Um, and that was just brilliant. It was just like, this is what I wanted, you know, I'm doing 12-hour shifts and getting to go to like amazing places because that's what you do because, you, you know, albeit sort of like, you know with that client all the time and it was christmas time um and then then it doors just started opening for me and i ended up having an interview with a with a lady for a job in america and and then i got that job and went off to america for um about six six months um doing that job over there but Jeannie, you, you've kind of played that down a little bit there, and I'm kind of going to pull you on that because you, you're doing this job, you're doing this close protection work. You don't get an interview for the job in America unless you're doing a good job where you are, right? So I'm kind of going to say, what was it about your, and, and I know there's a skill set there, but in terms of 
what you learned, what influenced you through your military career, when you're suddenly now in that close protection role, what are the things you lent on the most? How did, how did you get ahead or how did you kind of thrive in that environment so quickly? What, you know, what um, were you drawing on? I, th- I think because being, being a CP, bodyguard, whatever you want to call it, you've, you are second fiddle to the, the person, your principal, your client. And I, I think it's understanding them and what they require. So each one requires something different. And, and it's whether they want a dis- you to be discreet, whether they want you to they want you to be there but not be there. So it, it, it's kind of, you know, knowing, if you like, human nature and when you can read, I guess, I guess that's where the skill set comes, reading people's nonverbal communication and, and, and having that sort of, if you like, insight into, into what, what they want you to do at the time without having them to tell you to do it because, you know, they're paying a lot of money for for you to be there ultimately and I think maybe maybe that was it um maybe you know being the, the quiet person in the room which is what they want they don't want um some people don't want it to be obvious that that they've got security around them maybe that was what it was yeah and there's a reality here as well that you are their line of defense right they've been held up at night point you know you're going it there so obviously there's you know, there is a risk involved in working in this environment. How, how did how did you view risk? Was your view of risk, you know, could do you think, well, just I can just mitigate against any of the issues that are, that are there because of your training? Or, you know, was there ever a point when you thought, what have I got myself into here? That 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 was the, I think that's the biggest key to, to being, you know, a lot of it is luck, but it's also reading the situation and, and getting I always say it, I, I don't want to be in in a sticky situation i want to i want to know that that situation's coming or feel that that situation's coming and i think it's it's the like in in it's the gift of fear and it's about avoidance definitely about avoidance i don't want to be you know trying to fight fight someone or or anything like that and, and my main role is to get that client away from any issues before they one happen would be better or if they're happening that's your main role get them out of there you're not there to to be the hero if you like you're there to get to get your principal away from the situation and I think that's how I've always done I've tried to follow my gut and try to try to like if you like use that sixth sense which we've all probably got but we always dismiss you know um and and we've probably all had the situation where we've gone I wish I hadn't done that I knew I shouldn't have done that there was something in my head that was saying you know, don't do that. And I did it. And then this terrible things happen. So, I mean, it's trying to home into that. It sounds a bit early fairy, but I guess that's well, no, I, I suppose contrary to the, you know, the media perception of, you know, close protection bodyguard, as you said, whatever you want to call it, you're not just going gung ho and, and taking on the baddies, if you like. But I'm, I'm imagining now when you're back in East Timor or you're in Afghan and you're working with the community, you're on the ground, you're, you know, you're having that influence. You're doing all those things. You're not confronting it head on aggressively. You are reading the room. You are making decisions and, and avoiding escalating situations. So so I can see the translation there from what you did in the military to actually, okay, I'm, I'm just doing, it's just a different environment. Is that, is yeah. that a fair comparison? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's you know the old the, the, those are people who are listening who are military. We've all we've all done the command task, haven't we? And we've all seen or been the person that's got too stuck in as a leader and, and not taking the step back. And I think that's kind of what the role is. You you're in the background watching things unfold and and that is where your skill set should be and you do get taught it in the military to take a step back and when you take a step back and and take a breath you can you can often make the better choices for for that situation or that person or you know whatever you're trying to tackle and combat at the time Uh, now Gina I've had conversations with, with people before and one of the observations I've made on people with their transition from the military is how long it takes people to to settle to find the right purpose after they leave and whether that's work related or you know kind of extramural activities if you like for want a better phrase um but i'm also conscious that one of the milestones for me is when i see people give back and they get involved whether it's on a voluntary basis or they're involved in charity fundraising or they're doing something to help others it's obvious from your bio and from the, the work you're involved in that that is a big part of your life. At what point did you, I suppose, start to home in on your ability to help others and the drive and the willingness to want to get involved in in things that ultimately were, were, were helping others in the charity side of things and so on? What, what was the trigger point for that for you? Yeah, so I'd, I'd always done, you know, since since really young, done bits and bobs for charity and and I started volunteering and uh, doing bits, you know, like going on sponsored walks and that type of thing and helping rehome dogs and little bits and bobs that, you know, just make you make, you know, do do something good for people. And let, let me just jump in for a second. Was it always for a cause that was particularly close to your heart or were you kind of prepared to put yourself out there if someone said, oh, we're doing a we're doing this charity event. Do you want to get involved? Was it? Do you do you pick your causes deliberately? Yeah, so the the first thing I did when I went out is I did um I did the Death Valley Cycle Ride and that was for MAG, so the Minds Awareness Group, I think it is. So the the um, charity that Diana was involved with. Um and I did like Death Valley, so three hundred miles across um the Sahara Desert and and that was that was obviously military related, but it's also I, I quite wanted to do that as well, the, you know, the challenge. And, oh, my God, civvies are fit. <laughs> I was like, and that was when I realised the difference between hiring a bike for £100 or bringing your £3,000 bike across, because one of them's easier. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I have I mean, and animal charities, you know, I, I'm passionate about animals and stuff like that. So I got involved with the British Divers Marine Life Rescue and, um, I'm a marine mammal medic, so I, I go out to shouts for seals and dolphins and that type of thing. So that was all sort of fell into my my passions and stuff. But I think that the biggest catalyst, which is which drove me to where I am now, I guess, um, was was basically in 2019, we were all, you know, this tidal wave of COVID was coming towards us and we were all bracing ourselves for that. We, you know, it it was a word which we we not really heard of towards the back end of 2019. And um my brother um got diagnosed with with stage four bowel cancer and at the same time I got um diagnosed with PTSD and and all our efforts 
obviously went on to my brother because, you know, it, 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 the C word, the cancer word, not the COVID word, was pretty pretty serious and it hadn't been something in my family. And we we put all our efforts to him. Um, I was using what I now know as coping strategy and we was cycling every day or doing fitness, which I think a lot of the military turn to. Unfortunately, it's either for us probably alcohol or, or fitness. So on both sides, they do help at some point. Um, they distract. They distract. They distract you, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and, and I was out on a bike ride after seeing my brother and, and got hit by um, hit and had a hit and run and was on the floor checking my bike. My bike was destroyed. I, I ended up with a few stitches and, and cuts and badly bruised, but I was okay. Um, and then next day, tragically, my, my brother passed away. So um, that was a pretty rough time for anyone. Yeah, and especially during COVID, you know, it, it had all the restrictions where we weren't mm. supposed to go and see him, but, but you know, take me to court. We did. <laughs> because um, you know it was it was it was terminal um and and from there I, I always try to and all the way through my military career as well I've always tried to make a bit of a difference even if you know that's a chocolate bar to a child in an orphanage um so I decided to um raise some money for a local cancer charity I was going to do that by walking or running a hundred hundred miles a week for the whole year um and it was a little bit difficult because my, my bike was destroyed. Um, as I said, I was under Health of Heroes, and I, I mentioned this to to them, and they put me in touch with Safa, and and Safa amazingly, um, you know, they they contact all your regiments and stuff that you've been in, and and they amazingly made me the funds, and within two weeks I had a bike, and and I was paying it forward. I did the five thousand two hundred miles. I raised an amazing ten thousand pounds. I set up an our foundation within the cancer charity for cancer patients so they can go somewhere and have a bit of respite. Um, and those classes are still running today from, from the money, which which is amazing. Um, and, and then from there, I, if you like, I, I kind of wanted to give back to SAFA and the charities that had helped me during that time. But I felt I couldn't couldn't keep asking the people more people for money for me to go and do something crazy so I came up with the idea of putting together a book poetry book um written by military personnel volunteers veterans serving um mums and dads um, family members of, of serving people I put it together do it in poetry form just to make it harder and um and it would be a story through people's lives. And that all went to um, charity um, when it was eventually published. And then it just carried on rolling from then. I got back into, you know, my my crazy charity fundraising, which is what I wanted to do. I ended up being guest speaker at a number of events, which raised money for these charities. And then that kind of led me to being an ambassador of of. Woody's Lodge, which is a veterans and emergency services charity. Um, Purple Warriors is a veterans charity. Um, with a V-Wear just recently and um, and suicide as well. So it, it's well, let's unpack some of that because there's there's a lot of stuff <laughs> in lot, there, yeah. Gina. And there's a big there's a question for me almost at the start of that process. And uh, you know, obviously with with your brother and and the the, the cycling side of it, 
you know, this what drives you to say, look, I'm going to pick a challenge, but it's not going to be something easy. It's going to be outright. It seems to be that military people, when they want to pick a challenge, they're not doing the local park run and they're not doing a, you know, just a standard marathon. They've got to pick something that's outrageous. Is that something that you feel like if you're going to do something, it is going to raise the bar every time that it's not going to be what your average Joe will go or jo- Joanne will go out there and do that. You've got to, you've got to almost kind of set the standard. Is that, is that a recurring theme for you? Yeah, def- definitely more so now and the bar's getting a lot higher. <laughs> um, and I think I wanted to fit, fit that around my life. So I, I didn't have the, you know, the opportunity to, you know, get off and walk around the coast because um, I still had responsibilities uh, to earn money and, you know, that type of thing. So I, I came up with 100 miles a, a week and it take, took me to amazing different places where I was doing it, um, you know, um, which was fantastic and amazing different experiences. But it was it was definitely something that I needed to, to make it big, to make an impact, to, to make some money for this charity that had helped my brother during, during his hard times. So, so the first part of that, you know, for me, that, that sounds like a hugely cathartic process anyway, is having, like you said, the distraction of, you know, whether it's alcohol or exercise, you know, as military, we kind of tend to to get involved in those in, in sometimes in equal measure, but you're not always healthily, but it, you know, that happens. And anyone that talks about grief will understand, you know, the different phases and emotions that you go through in, in grief. But when you look at getting involved in another charity, and then another charity. When does the when does the charitable side of stuff and the giving back and the fundraising start to become the biggest part of your time and your energy and your purpose versus I'm going to work in security? You know, it, from an emotional point of view, do you feel like it's that is the biggest part now? De- definitely. I think I think it, it's it's if you like my calling, it's definitely something I've got got. A, an ultimate passion for um it's something that does make a difference even even if it's just which is why i like to get on podcasts because it raises the awareness and the, the amazing things that these charities do for people because sometimes you know you'll go out and, and do a marathon for a different charity and, and you won't maybe hear of what the good is that your money's done so it's good to get out there and, and you know tell people that actually the money gets to its beneficiaries and it and it changes their lives for the some well most of the time for the better, and also it can can catalyst you into a different way of life that you never thought would ever happen. But then it becomes not only your passion, but your drive and and your sense of purpose, if you like. And and well, oh, yeah, yeah. And I think picking up that you know that sense of purpose. You know, we talk about when we're in the merch, we're really clear we've got a purpose. And a lot of people struggle when they leave because they're in a job but it's not necessarily something they're passionate about and it's not necessarily a purpose. It just pays the bills. But I'm kind of interested, the type of charities that you've been helping, they're, they're a personal resonant, you know, you resonate with them personally. Um, they're not all military charities as well, which is kind of interesting for me that you are involved in different causes and you talk about the Marine life and, uh, and that as well. But in terms of that purpose, do you sometimes ask yourself, should somebody else be doing this as well? Do you feel like getting other people involved or not doing as much yourself is almost that kind of dilemma as well? Um, I, th- I think with it, 
people in this country are amazing. They, you know, the, the volunteers and the way our country ch- raises money for charity is is probably second to none for what we give. You know, volunteers have said it said it when when I amazingly won Volunteer of the Year this year. That that volunteers are definitely the lifeblood, and and some people will go, you know, a lifetime volunteering. You know, I'm I'm part of the ACF now, back in the Army Cadets as an instructor, and they'll go a lifetime changing people's lives that they may never know about and never get recognised. And and that's, you know, I just think it's it's what makes Britain great with some of the, those things. And I think most people in this country do do charitable bits and and even if it's donation because they you know they need to live in the cost of living crisis and all that type of thing um if i can inspire people to join me then i will definitely um i i I love going and doing the stuff which i i you know in the background that i don't talk about on every day you know going and meeting veterans in in the woody's lodge and chatting to them about their experiences and as as i was when you speak to them, you just think everybody's just had an, an amazing life it, within the military. Everybody's got a story to tell. Um, and and it, it's nice just to be able to connect with these people. And I think that's one of the biggest things is connection. Yeah, I think the reason for my question was that I see, you know, people like you, they get involved in charity and then there are multiple charities. And it's almost like they're doing they're doing 10 times the, the stuff some people don't do anything and actually it's carried your whole you know the charitable sector is carried by the amazing volunteers the people who are almost it is their purpose but i kind of i think you made a really good point there if listening to the stories if hearing the work that's being done inspires one other person to get involved then actually we we spread the load because you know it must be it must be exhausting emotionally to be involved in so many different charities that will pull on the heartstrings where you will see the impact where you will see the the difficulty some people are chasing do you ever get to the point you feel it, it is actually quite a lot to the process yeah it, it, i mean it can it can get it can get you definitely because you you know you are meeting so many different individuals and and that type of thing and it and it and it it, it it's not across the bear but you you i guess how i i look at it is i think well i'm lucky because i'm i'm able to you know still function and and get out there and help people so i try and reverse it when i can um obviously it, it you know charity stuff and that it doesn't pay the bills so i need to need to do a bit of work now and again um but if i could make it my life that I mean, the last couple of years, I, I kind of have. I've fitted in work. I've had the the luxury to be able to fit in work around my charity stuff. So, my my life pretty much, you know, I I I, I enjoy it at the minute. I do enjoy it. Um, it is tiresome traveling up and down the country and stuff. But you know, I don't think I'd have it any other way at the moment. But when we have a purpose and it's a passion, right? It's, it's not really work, is it? And I know, and I know it's not paid work, but it's kind of like almost your full time kind of profession is to to get involved in these things you know if you look forward now and you kind of think okay what am I going to be doing in five years time in 10 years time if you you've got to I mean you said that you'd love to be doing this full time you'd love to do this as a as a living what are the what are the things the boxes that haven't been ticked yet for Gina Atkinson you know what are you thinking is the, the the next part of your career 
Um, I, I want to continue sort of doing what I'm doing, if you like, but I, I definitely want to make, I'd like to make more of an impact and make more of a change within definitely the veterans community. By, and there's a lot of stuff, a lot of good stuff being done. You know, we've got we've got an MP for veterans and he's doing really trying to shape change and really making a difference. Um, albeit, you know, we get held up by legislation and, and, and political turmoil, I guess. So I, I'd like to continue doing what I'm doing. I'd like to maybe make make some big changes I, i'd really like to get and i've spoke to um, johnny mercer about it um a parliament which is which was you know an, another amazing thing to be able to get your voice into into uh, you know parliament and put your thoughts across um i'd like to definitely have a look at you know more health and well-being within veterans and trying to get to instead of treating it once it's happened to prevent it happening so more of a preventative nature this this country is very good at treating the disease or the problem as opposed to preventing it and I think that can be done and help help veterans by like you know simple things like giving us massive discounts off gym memberships so people who can't afford it can get in a gym because we we know it helps physical and mental well-being and that and that's something that I'd like to get into is trying to either make that change that council gyms give it us for free or give us percentage off or get more discounts for that because I think it would have a great benefit on the health of veterans, well, everybody in society, really, but well, definitely Gee, veterans. I, I, I think it's pretty clear to anyone listening that there, there's a passion, there's a there's a buzz, you know, when you're talking about what you're doing and, and kind of what more you want to do, there, there's a definite buzz there. You're now looking backwards and looking at that teenager that goes through the barracks as a cadet way back when. If you could kind of throw a bit of advice back that that person that the gina that walked through the camp gates then as a, as a cadet and say listen you can make the most of life this is what it's going to turn out to be what what would be the nugget the nugget that you pass back to the young gina that you that you know now that you didn't know then um i'd, I'd probably say you know don't don't worry about the little things because it's going to be it's it's going to be okay because the little things that seem huge aren't huge when you get you know then then it's not a problem (laughs) you know and 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 one other thing which came to me when I was back back in the area of um, my first posting as a real soldier once I'd done phase one and phase two um is maybe drink less and go and see what where you live because um you know, on a weekend, you probably know it yourself. And it was great. It was great at the time. You'd go out, you'd have a few drinks, you'd, you'd de-stress, you'd decompress. Um, but sometimes you wouldn't leave the barracks and you'd be in absolutely stunning places. So I'd probably say, you know, you're into kayaking, you're into climbing, get out and do a bit of that or just get out and see the countryside because you've been to some amazing places, really. Um, yeah, but apart from that. Yeah, you talk about the little things in life. It's, I, mean, I suppose if you're talking to the young cadets now, it's like, don't worry if you run out of mobile credit. It's not the end of the world. You will get that again. Yeah. But you're right. You know, people get anxious about all sorts of little things. I'm going to ask you a different phase in life now. If you are talking to Gina as she's put her chit in, as she's about to walk out of the camp gates, 
and the next phase, the career, you know, out of uniform, what would be the thing you've learned the most that you would have dropped in your own ear at that point? Again, I think it'd be don't worry because it, it's the, the best thing you ever did was getting out. I, I don't I don't regret, regret getting out at the point I got out of without a shadow of a doubt. Um, you know, there is times when you think in the early stages, what have I done? But, you know, you were in the army or the military. You had that drive. So you're going to succeed in life when you get out. Um, it just is going to be a different chapter to your life. And we need different chapters in our lives to, to make us who we are and to experience, you know, this amazing world that we all live in. Uh, Gina Accusonist, I'm really grateful for you giving me uh, your honest insights into to that journey, to the purpose that you've got now. And obviously, from I suppose, from, you know, from sad beginnings, your first fundraising right the way through to all the different things that you're involved in now. Um, I'm really grateful for that, Gina. And um, I, I'll put the link to the book of poems that you mentioned there, which um I, I have seen, I know we've spoken before and I have seen that and I haven't quite got round to reading through those poems, but uh, fantastic cause and a fantastic vehicle, I think, for uh, for raising funds as well. So we'll pop that link um, into the into the podcast notes. But Gina Atkinson, thank you for joining me on the Naffy Break. Yeah, thank you, Dom. It's been, it's been a certain pleasure to be on and, and I, I enjoy your questions. They, they really spark some, um, some, some grey matter, that's for sure. Well, I'm good. If it if it makes you and anyone else think think about these things, then it's a good thing. Thanks, Gina. Thank you.